Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. In the early 1930s, a very odd story emerged from the Isle of Man, a small island located in the Irish Sea between Britain and Ireland. A man called James Irving had reported to his neighbours that an unusual animal, similar to a weasel, had taken up residence on his farm. Although the scratching sounds and other weird noises were relatively explainable, what was remarkable in this instance was that, according to Irving, this creature could talk and perform a range of unusual feats. It would eventually come to be known as Jeff, who identified himself as a mongoose who had been born in 1852 in Delhi, India. His activities with the Irving family over the next few years would baffle and intrigue a variety of interested parties, including Harry Price, who at the time was perhaps the most famous investigator of the paranormal in Britain. Despite this interest, a satisfying conclusion to the mystery was never reached, yet the case of the Dalby spook still fascinates people all these years later, including my guest for this episode, Christopher Joseph, who in 2017 released his book, Jeff! The Strange Tale of an Extra Special Talking Mongoose, a brilliantly researched and definitive account of this case. I've been fascinated by the story of Jeff for many years, and it was a real pleasure to get Christopher onto the podcast to talk all about him. So, without further ado, enjoy! Christopher, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hello, thanks for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been fascinated by the case of Jeff the Mongoose. I got frightened by a picture of it in uh, the Mysteries of the Unknown Ghosts book. So I've always wanted to do an episode about this case since the podcast started. So, yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Was that one of the uh, Osborne, Osborne books? Yeah, it was, it was just a, a picture of in some claws coming through the ceiling that absolutely, oh, absolutely terrified me. I know that And one. it stayed with me to this day. So, yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people, that was their first introduction to Jeff, um, myself included. Um, and those those illustrations are indeed very creepy. Mm. So to start off with, just tell us a little bit about your background and what prompted you to write a book about this case. Well, I'm a librarian. And some years ago, I started working at the University of London Library um, in Senate House. And when you start there they give you a tour around the various departments um, and their special collections and archives department has the Harry Price archive and Harry Price's library um, which I was quite excited to hear and the archivist at the time was explaining you know he investigated Bawley Rectory and Rudy Schneider and Helen Duncan and he'd said ah oh, yes but my favourite of all is the case of the talking mongoose and it did click something in my my brain I thought oh yeah I remember that from it may have been the Osborne book when I was a child it may have been the unexplained part work magazines in the 80s um anyway I thought oh good you know they've got Price's investigation all his notes I'll um I'll pop down some lunch times and read through it and I'm sure it will be very easy to clear up exactly what was going on um and in fact the more I read of um James Irving, the farmer's letters and diaries and 
Price's notes and I became more and more obsessed by this case because it didn't seem to have a, a simple explanation as to whether it was a hoax or whether it was a poltergeist or um, a collective delusion. But all those things I think are true, but no one explanation is true. And it, it generated this, as I say, rather obsessive quest such that I, I ended up going to the Isle of Man to try and interview people who whose parents may have remembered, grandparents may have remembered the case and uh, going to Cambridge because they have the um, Society for Psychical Research archives there. Um, so I did amass quite a lot of material and interviewed quite a few people. And I still don't know the answer as to, to exactly what, what happened in, uh, on the Isle of Man in the 1930s. Mm. I mean, you're right. Reading your book, there, there are so many elements that influence this case, aren't there? I mean, everything from where it happened to the people involved to the farmhouse itself. There's, there's, there are little bits of everything that kind of almost go together to create this case. I think I used to think it was completely unique and it tends to be or tended to be in, in um, Fortean or unexplained mystery anthologies. I think the Jeff de Mongu case tends to be presented as completely out there on its own. Um, my impression after having researched and read around this is that there are some other poltergeist cases with some similarities with um, a very garrulous and foul-mouthed voice and, and <laughs> sometimes the appearance of a little animal. Um, but the way that it seems to captivate the whole local area and the fact of the Irving family insisting that Jeff had a physical... Um, physical presence that he, he needed to eat food and he could catch a cold and those some of those aspects seem to be unique uh in comparison with other cases or the similar cases hmm. i mean i imagine that a lot of the listeners to this podcast are familiar with jeff but for those that aren't how does this case begin right so in the autumn of 1931 um a farming family in quite a rural part of the Isle of Man began to claim to initially to local people, neighbours, that a little animal had appeared in their in their farmhouse and that it could talk and it sang songs and hymns. And fairly quickly it became a kind of local sensation, I suppose. Um, this is a period and a part of the country when most houses didn't have uh, radios, they certainly didn't have TVs, there wasn't a lot of entertainment, so it seemed to be the thing to do on a Friday or Saturday night that people would go up to this farm on a very isolated, it's a very isolated spot on a hill, um, and they would sometimes get snowed in in winter for months at a time. But anyway, the, the um, news travelled farther and farther around the Isle of Man, then it got known about on the mainland and, and it became quite a big newspaper story in, in the early 30s um, possibly because there was a need for some light and amusing news during the depression and the fears of another war and the rise of fascism um, but it is odd that something so apparently parochial because the entity called Jeff, this little weasel or mongoose, 
he spoke a great deal, according to the Erden family, but he never really said anything of kind of world international import. All his utterances were quite mundane about gossip about the neighbouring farmers knitting a jumper or someone's lost a sheep. And um, it was very day-to-day stuff, uh, which I personally found rather convincing in a way. I think if, if I was going to fabricate a ghost or a, a haunting, I would maybe give it more prophecies of another war or something of, of greater import, kind of a Nostradamus-type utterances. But Jeff's quotes tend to be, yeah, the comment, gossip and commentary about neighbours and mm-hmm. spying in school and people's what people are wearing and how they talk. Um, it's a very strange business. Mm. And the family themselves, the Irving family, they're reading your book. They're, they're real characters. They're all quite different. And we just talk about them a little bit. Yeah, I, I said they were an Isle of Man family. I should clarify that. They, they're actually from Liverpool originally. Um, so James Irving, the husband and father, was quite a successful salesman in Liverpool and he, he had a business selling pianos and organs um, and this somehow crashed during the war due to some tariffs or taxes and he then started to speculate in real estate and decided to set up as a farmer having no experience. Um, his wife Margaret did have Manx ancestry. Um, they had two children when they were setting up the farm on the Isle of Man and things got bad, they left and then by the time this Jeff case started, there was only three of them. Their younger daughter, Vori, which is Manx for Mary, who was actually born when the parents were in their 40s. So by the time Harry Price was investigating this and met the daughter when she was 17, the parents were in their 60s. So it's a rather odd uh, age gap. Um, James Irving seems to have been a very domineering and controlling figure. And he did most of the talking whenever people like Harry Price or Nand or Fodor went to investigate. It was always um, Irving just explaining and talking. He seemed to be utterly obsessed by the thing. Um, But all three of the family claimed to have seen Jeff uh, and they'd all spoken to him. And they, if you like, they each had a different relationship with with Jeff, this little animal, um, as odd as that sounds. Mm, no, definitely. One thing I, I I did get the sense is that the house itself, Dawlish Cashin, that almost has as much of a presence as as Jeff the mongoose himself. It's it seems like quite a dark kind of shadowy place. Not a lot of natural light. And you talk in the book about how when James Irving he hired some workmen to do some work on the house, and they wouldn't stay there overnight. I found that interesting. Yes, there there are some indications that there was something uncanny in the area prior to 1931 and and Jeff's first appearances. So having bought this derelict farm in, I think it was 1916, yes, and um, there were a couple of workmen who refused to stay there overnight because it was too sinister and they heard noises and they would prefer to walk from the city of Peel, which was about six or eight miles away, and they'd rather do that than actually stay overnight. There's also a couple of legends from the 19th century about um, some kind of invisible presence. Um, 
the whole area is very old. People have lived there for thousands of years. Um, there are Bronze Age burial mounds, and there was a Viking farm settlement on, on the farm site. There's some early Christian chapels there. Um, Jeff himself said that he'd been there for some time waiting for a kind of appropriate or sympathetic family to appear. Um, and I think his precise words were, I could hear you all the time, I could understand you, but it wasn't until you taught me to speak that I could communicate with you. So there is a sense in which, if, if you believe in such things, that there was a, a spirit or entity, which, which I know is debatable, um, that he was waiting there all the time and... and um, it was only that this family were somehow sympathetic or um, suitable to sort of bring him into, bring his presence into this world. Um, but you're right about the, the house. They didn't have any electricity. Um, photos of it tend to look rather like a plant. They, have, um, they had petrol lamps and candles. Um, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the stone walls had been covered by um, wood panelling as a kind of insulation. And there, there was a gap behind the wood panelling of about four inches. So in theory, a little animal could kind of scurry around all over the house. Um, and the, the wooden panelling was dark. It was stained dark. So the whole thing was very dark and dingy. And in fact, Harry Price noticed that when the three Irving family people went outside they seemed to react to sunlight and their eyes would recoil he was kind of hinting at some kind of vampirism i think but he never really drew that out i think the, the logical explanation is that they, they lived in semi-darkness so that when they did go out into bright sunlight it was too much for them but this was just another facet of their the whole family's weirdness he he commented on margaret and uh for his strange look in their eyes and many people said of Margaret the mother that she was a witch or she was psychic um, there was no actual evidence or proof for that it's just that several people commented on it people like spiritualists and, and uh, mediums they said oh, she's got the power I can tell and certainly if you see photos of I'd say both Margaret and the daughter of Ori, there is something very haunting and um, enigmatic about their their eyes take that for what it what it is really you know um the general opinion that i sense that i got from talking to people on the island whose grandparents or uncles remember the cases the general idea belief was that it was a hoax the whole thing had been a hoax that was cooked up between the mother and the daughter to try and frighten the father into selling up uh, and returning to Liverpool because they, understandably, they were living in this godforsaken, cold, um, miserable house on top of the hill uh, with no friends or neighbours. Um, and they'd been accustomed to quite a nice lifestyle in the big city and they wanted to return. The problem with this theory is that, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if that's... If it was just a hoax perpetrated by the mother and the daughter, it would have been impossible for them to keep this up for a number of years, which is how long that, I mean, this lasted about eight years in total. It would have been impossible for the father not to have caught them out at some stage. So 
if the whole thing was a hoax, which is there is an argument mm. to say that um, he must have been involved somehow, um, complicit, I should say, he must have been part of that hoax. Um, and yet, when you see his diaries and letters, um, which are in the Harry Price archive. He obsessively goes on and on, day after day, about Jeff's quite mundane doings and what Jeff did, or I saw Jeff running around, or he said this and that. And we had these very long conversations with Jeff. Um, so that it's very hard to square a simple hoax with this man spending. Presumably, farming is quite a time-consuming business, and you know he had sheep and goats. You have to look after them. He seemed to spend quite a few hours a day writing these very detailed accounts of Jeff's activities. So I never really bought into the the simple hoax explanation. Although I'm clearly there are elements of that. There, there were some hair fur samples were sent. Um, and paw prints in clay, um, and these are fairly obviously crude hoaxes. Um, the the first samples were at Harry Price's request because he was getting frustrated that there was no hard evidence for this for this little animal. Um, so Irving said, "Yes, Jeff has left these little first samples, posted them down to London. Harry Price had them analysed by a friend at the Natural History Museum." Um, and this chap said these are quite clearly from a dog. These are dog hairs. Um, and in fact, the Irvings did have a sheepdog whose hairs seem identical. So there's a fairly clear and rather crude hoax there. There are some paw prints that Jeff allegedly made in clay. Um, and again, this expert poo-pooed it. So this is not the thing with the Jeff. There's a, an artist's impression of Jeff and descriptions of Jeff. His front paws are always much bigger than his back paws, uh, so he could hold objects and steal things and bang on the walls. And there is no known animal in the animal kingdom that has great big front paws and little back paws, bearing in mind he was meant to be six inches with a six-inch bushy tail. Um, so there are clearly elements of a fairly crude hoax. There are photos of Jeff that um, appear in my book. Um, some people think they're fairly crude hoaxes. Other people think they're more convincing evidence. Um, the interesting thing about them, I think, is that the appearance of the whatever it is, the little animal in each of these photos changes each time. Um, he is never quite the same. Um, Possibly they were fabricated with fox furs or rabbit skins. Um, I was rather struck by the comparison with the uh, Crothingley Fairies case, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. The, um, the two girls, two cousins in a little village near Bradford, um, I think it was in 1917 or so, and they, they claimed they were literally fairies at the bottom of the garden. They used to go down to the garden to play by the stream and they saw fairies um, and they produced these photographs with these beautiful little Edwardian fairies dancing around, um, which various people were taken in by most famously Arthur Conan Doyle, who was an ardent spiritualist. Um, and these two girls, as they grew older and became women, they insisted that it had been true until about 60 years later, 
a journalist for it was one of the unexplained magazine issues i think tracked them down and he basically got them to admit that they'd faked these photographs and even then one of these two women insisted that only some of them had been faked and i think the other one said well we had to fake the photos because no one would believe in the fairies so that there is a sense i think with these cases that the subjects become the objects of such scrutiny uh, and they, they fall under a great deal of pressure to provide hard evidence which often isn't apparent in these trickster cases um, with these entities that exist half and half in our world and another world um, and it's part of their part of their charm, I suppose, you like, or the frustration that they won't provide hard evidence. And and I think this does, has, in some cases, compelled people to fabricate evidence just out of frustration. Um, I know that sounds like a cop-out, but there's a an account of Yuri Geller, I heard, that is a version of his life that says he did originally have some kind of unexplained power. Uh, and this propelled him onto the world stage and he became a celebrity um, and he was whizzed around the world doing these performances. Um, good looking young guy, had lots of nice clothes, a car, um, meeting glamorous ladies. And then at some point this power, whatever it was, deserted him and he thought, oh, but I can't stop all this and go back to my dry cleaners in Cyprus. Um, so he continued to fabricate um, the, the the tricks, I suppose. Um, that's one account of Yuri. Other people will say, well, the whole thing was fake from the very beginning. But um, I, I think people do come under some pressure to to come up with evidence. Uh, and I think that may have been something that was going on with this Jeff case. Um, it's striking the number of people other than the family that heard Jeff um, and in circumstances where they were fairly convinced it couldn't have been any of the family such that they were talking directly to the two parents and the daughter was outside. They could see her out in the yard feeding the chickens or that the, the mother was actually in, um, out of, she wasn't even there. She was at Peel looking after her mother. Um, there were several accounts of this people could hear Jeff. There's one or two people who saw him. Um, so if it was a hoax, it's something that seemed to take over the, the whole neighbourhood, um, a kind of collective hysteria, which, although there are psychiatric cases of whole families um, sharing in a delusion, I'm, I'm not aware of one where a whole village or a whole neighbourhood shares in a delusion and yet that's if you take the, the purely sceptical view that that's what must have happened is, is that you know a whole district bought into this um james irving had a an affidavit saying he could attest to 15 people who would swear that they'd heard jeff and it was all genuine and there were several people um probably about 10 or 12, that Nandor Fodor, the investigator uh, for the Society for Psychical Research, 
he stayed with the family for a week and he tracked these people down and they were all quite sincere and they said, yes, yes, uh, I've heard Jeff or um, Mr. Irving tells me things that he couldn't possibly know. Uh, the, the Famously, the, the Peel bus depot, Jeff was quite well known to the bus drivers and the engineers there and um, people there said they didn't like it when Mr. Irving came down to talk to them because he knew things about their private lives and, and the interiors of their houses. And Irving would say, well, that's because Jeff's been spying on you and Jeff told me all about this. And But it it got to such a stage that these some of these guys at the bus depot tried to kill Jeff. They set up a, a little electrical trap under the number 82 bus. Um, so they must have well, clearly they took this thing quite seriously. So there's a whole neighbourhood sharing in this belief. Um, and as I say, a couple of people, aside from the family, who who saw, who saw Jeff. Um, I spoke to a lady who's, it was her aunt, that's right, there was there were three people in total who said they'd seen him. There was, a, at the time, in the 30s, who was a young girl, so I spoke to her aunt, um, who insisted that her aunt wasn't, you know, an inventive or prank-playing person, and she would absolutely not have made this up. She saw this little animal. Um, but this lady was quite uninterested, really. She seemed to think it was quite matter-of-fact. She was far more concerned to tell me about some kind of family feud that had happened. It was nothing to do with Jeff or mongooses or anything, and... Um, it was as if this was just, yes, of course, yes, she'd seen the mongoose. Um, very strange. And with Jeff himself, that wasn't his original name, was it? He started off as being reported as a sort of a weasel or a man weasel, and he was called Jack. And it seems like his identity evolved to a certain point, and then the Jeff persona took over almost. Yes, I think I think you're absolutely right that he did evolve and he he seemed to adapt in response to people's suggestions, letters in newspapers and visits from invest, sort of psychic investigators and journalists. So the, the very initial reports speak of a weasel called Jack um, and the description is of this little 12-inch long animal, uh, looks like a weasel or a stoat, um, and he called himself Jack. And then at some point he decided he preferred to be called Jeff. He apparently could read the newspaper and he'd seen the name Jeff. G-E-O-F-F, but he couldn't spell, so it's phonetically G-E-F. And then he decided he was a mongoose, although all the descriptions of him and the uh, photographs, such as they are, and don't really resemble a mongoose. What seems to have happened is someone wrote a letter to, I think it was an Isle of Man newspaper, suggesting that this was a mongoose. Um, and oddly enough, that they're not completely unknown to the Isle of Man. I found out that about 20 years prior to this, this event, a nearby farmer, about six miles away, had imported uh, half a dozen mongooses to control the rabbit population because the rabbits were laying waste to his crops. There there are apparently no foxes on the Isle of Man, so they couldn't control it. And bear in mind, this is the time of the British Empire, so it would be 
relatively easy to source uh, from mongooses from India or the Middle East. Um, and once this letter had been published, Jeff, and this is all according to James Irving, it's all mediated through James Irving. Jeff told me this, Jeff said that uh, occasionally you get the voice of the mother and the daughter, but in this case, as in so many others, Jeff said he was a mongoose and very precise. But particularly, he said, I was born on June the 7th, 1852 in Delhi, and um, he was kept by two Indians and he escaped. And I tried to shoot him and he made his way to England uh, by various means. And he traveled through Egypt and seen the Sphinx. Um, and he did, he spoke sort of snatches of various bits of other languages. Um, and he did say a few words that he claimed were Hindi. Um, these are all basically recorded by James Irving, who was uh, interested in languages and sort of autodidact and just generally interested in various things. Um, I tried to check these words out. So I, I, um, I spoke to a couple of colleagues from the Indian subcontinent and they said that this is, these are nonsense words. You know, this is just rubbish. The only words that were actual Hindi words were, were ones that would have been fairly well known to the general sort of British population, like Raja and um, Yogi and fairly common things. But um, it, it doesn't, as is the case with a lot of poltergeist cases, they give very specific details about their origins and background. And when you try and check it out when you try and verify it it doesn't stand up um so the the enfield poltergeist case i think gave very specific this entity gave very detailed descriptions of who he had been and um who had lived he'd been someone that lived in this house and died there and um and yet when when this was checked out with electoral records and things it didn't really stack up um so there is something quite similar in these cases. You hear about it in seances with something apparently comes through and provides very specific details, which ostensibly can be checked out with kind of birth, marriage records and things. And they really seem to stack up. They don't ever really add up. Um, so Jeff said he was from a mongoose from India. Then he said he was a marsh mongoose from Southern Africa. Um, none of these mongoose... I spent... I wasted quite a lot of time investigating mongooses and their appearances and their, their, you know, sizes and things, and none of them really resembled his description or were as small as him. There was one mongoose that was 12 inches, um, a dwarf mongoose, but it didn't come from India, so... You, you end up being quite frustrated trying to trying to track this stuff down. I, I remember once I um, when I visited the the farm site, the farmhouse itself now has been pulled down, but you can still see uh, where it stood. Um, and I had a, took a bit of stone from there, and I had a friend, a psychic friend, I guess you'd say she was. And she kind of read it, psychometric, like she read it stone. And she provided very specific details about Jeff had been um, 
a mongoose that had died and a, a girl, a, a, let me get this right, a girl had died and her spirit had gone into this mongoose and she even provided the name and I thought, my God, this is fantastic, I can I can check all this out. She was absolutely convinced um, and it didn't, I couldn't, I, I checked out all the deaths of, of um, girls in that area at that time and, and there were none that fitted that, that particular name uh, or or the um, I think it was meant to be died of an accident, and there was none like that. So you you end up being frustrated if you try and verify it like this, um, which I think takes us back to the idea of these entities as tricksters that they just want to lead us up garden path, lead us a bit of a merry dance. Hmm. Um, they're so talkative, and they say so much, but so little of it can be verified. Yeah, I mean. James Irving, he had a lot of, he had an interest in foreign parts, didn't he? He was interested in Egypt and I think he had a, he had a book about India and, and yogis and, and their practices. And yeah. it, it does seem yeah. like some of yeah. Jeff's character is informed by James Irving's knowledge of the world. And that's not to say it's not, you know, Jeff didn't exist, but it, it does seem a correlation between James Irving and Jeff. Definitely, and and in uh, Vori as well. I think her, she was interested in mechanics, and and um, in fact, she became an engineer during the war. She worked at a, a factory making parts for Spitfire planes. Um, so she was interested in cars and cameras and things like that. And so was Jeff. And. James Irving was interested in different languages and he seemed to have had some kind of affinity with uh, Jews and Judaism and um, some of his customers in Liverpool when he had this piano and organ business were from the Liverpool Jewish area. Um, and sure enough, Jeff spoke Hebrew and sang some kind of Hebrew psalms and things. So that there is a sense that he's a composite of of their interests um, and Liverpool being a cosmopolitan city, there would have been different languages heard. Irving used to go down to the docks and chat to people, and he would have heard um, all sorts of languages, if parts of the Manx language that Jeff occasionally spoke. This was something that Irving was actively seeking out, because at that time, the language was more or less dying out. Happily now it's being revived, but in, in the... Um, 20s and 30s it was more or less dying out as a living language and in fact the only part of the island where it was still spoken was this southwest area and the parish of Patrick where they lived but only amongst old people and, and Irving would chat to people and would record various Manx words in his notebooks and so there, there is your right in sense that Jeff doesn't have a completely independent existence. He, he's somehow a, a composite of the the minds of, of, of the urban family. Um, he, thinking of the Nando Fodor, um, so I'll just say a little bit about him. He was um, a research officer for the Society for Psychical Research. And unlike Harry Price, who just spent a couple of days on the Isle of Man, um, talked to the Irving family. Jeff didn't appear, so he left and um, wrote a book about it, kind of hinting that it was a hoax. Fodor actually stayed with the family for a week, and he was far more rigorous and thorough and um, 
got to observe the family at close hand and interviewed all sorts of people. He was also a psychoanalyst. He he said he'd been trained by Freud. Actually, he was trained by students of Freud. Uh, he's originally from Hungary. He was a lawyer and quite a prolific writer on paranormal uh, affairs. And he'd written books about poltergeists and hauntings. Um, and he had a rather curious about face. So in his first summary of the case, he has a psychoanalytic interpretation, which is what you'd expect from a trained analyst. And he sees Jeff as a kind of exteriorization of Vori, the daughter's need for a protector. So she was thought of as a bit odd by the other school children and she was a bit different and there's a sense that she was bullied. So Jeff was this kind of imaginary protector. And for James Irving, her father, his thwarted ambitions that he'd once been quite a wealthy and respected man in Liverpool and he'd been reduced to being a failed farmer. They were, I should say, they they did have quite a comfortable standard of living, but by the time this affair was going on, they were absolutely dirt poor and they were um, desperately short of money um, because he wasn't a natural farmer. He didn't know how to how to farm. It's not something you can just go into doing. So that Fodor saw that Irving's had great ambition and a sort of self-taught man with intelligence with various interests, um, frustrated that he was just being mocked by the other farmers for being a failure. And that Jeff, just as for Vori, he was this protector against uh, mean school children. He was the sort of fantasy figure of why Irving should be the object of interest. Um, but the strange thing is, at a, a few years later, Fodor wrote um, another book with, with a chapter on the case, and he concluded that Jeff must be uh, an animal that learned to talk. So it's very strange. It's um, it, The two don't really go together. And he concluded that on the basis that Jeff ate food and um, could catch a cold. Uh, not that he'd seen Jeff, but he'd seen the Irving put food out in the house and he was convinced it disappeared. Well, it did disappear. He didn't see anyone take it. Um, Jeff said he would catch rabbit, kill rabbits and leave them outside the house, which Fodor saw. They were still warm. Um, and I think on these basis of this evidence, he changed his view and rather bizarrely concluded that this was a physical animal that had learned to talk. Um, rather strange for a, for a learned and educated man, but there you go. Um, as I say, he, he was there for a week. He, he conducted a far more thorough and rigorous investigation than Price. Hmm. I mean, yeah, the, the idea of, a, of an animal that's learned to talk is... It's just as bizarre as the the other explanation as some sort of poltergeist-like entity, isn't it? Well, I, it, it's nonsense, really. I mean, animals like weasels or squirrels or hedgehogs or mongooses, the vocal cords are not capable of producing human speech. Um, I mean, I suppose I started off at a bit of a, you could say, disadvantage or a prejudice in that I began this 
believing in poltergeists. If someone is convinced there's no such thing as a poltergeist, then they will look for other explanations. But I think because I'd started off believing that such things do exist, based on the, um, the amount of evidence from around the world, it's quite, quite common and one often gets similar happenings with um, objects appearing and disappearing and pools of water and um, rapping and banging and, and some of these did indeed happen here um, so I guess my my take on this would be it's, it's easier to believe that this was a poltergeist than it was a talking animal um, because I can't see how an animal could produce human speech you know only parrots can do it really um, or who are the talking seal but He's not really speaking, they're just imitating. It's not, um, you can't have a conversation with a parrot or, or with a talking seal. Um, so I suppose I thought it, it's, it's, it's actually easier to believe that this was a poltergeist. Um, and as I looked into this, I learned that there were, it, it isn't unique, a voice, you know, it's, it's, there are quite a few cases that, um, the Enfield poltergeist is a famous one, the Battersea poltergeist in the 20s. Um, there was one in Zaragoza in the 30s. And there seems to be a similarity that these voices, whatever they are, they have a similar character that they're very chatty and boastful. They swear a lot. They're very irreverent and they they mock and, and laugh at people and lampoon them. Um, not to say it's the same entity although some some have noted that the name Jeff or Jeffrey does seem to recur throughout various cases so there was a, the Epworth Parsonage haunting which is uh, home to the Wesley family where John Wesley grew up um, there was quite a dramatic haunting there with um, objects hurling around and moving and um, voices and uh, banging and clattering and um and the, the Wesley children saw a little mole or badger or animal apparition of, of one um and they ascribe this to an entity called old Geoffrey. Uh and then a hundred if you go hundred years later in the northeast of England at Willington Mill, outside Newcastle, another poltergeist case with um, apparitions of uh, to accompany all the kind of weird psychic events. Again, the name Jeffrey is, is applied. So that's, I'm not sure what to make of that. I think that's just a weird coincidence. But uh, there is certainly a similarity in the, the character of these entities. I think they, they, they do tend to be like petulant teenagers or children, and, and that may have something to do with the idea that with these poltergeist instant incidents, there's often a, a teenager at the heart of it, um, as indeed there was in this case with Bori. So the whole thing began when she was 12, and it seemed to die away when she was 18. So uh, Jeff, what happened, you see, is Jeff would go roaming around the Isle of Man, picking up gossip and stealing paintbrushes and getting into mischief, and then he'd come back and 
reports to the Irvings, and he'd keep them up all night, telling him about telling them about his adventures. And as um, the years went on, and as Rory grew older, his disappearances grew longer, and his appearances grew less. So the last really recorded recorded by James Irving uh, instance of Jeff appearing was in 1939, when Rory um, was 21. So you could think this is gone along through her puberty and now she's become a woman it's finished it may also have been the start of the war that more important things are happening uh, and people aren't interested in the talking mongoose um maybe jeff joined up to serve <laughs> who knows um it'd be useful <laughs> yeah it would be very useful our secret weapon short of the war but seriously i do think that there is something significant in the fact that his manifestation parallels her becoming a teenager uh, through becoming a woman. Um, although, again, that's very unusual. Looking at other poltergeist cases or hauntings, they tend to last a few months, and this was about eight years. Um, so although I think I said earlier that, that this isn't unique, there are several aspects of it that are unique, and I, I think that's part of its enduring fascination um, and the, the character of Jeff as well um, as we don't know what the character of the Loch Ness Monster is um, but you get a very definite sense of Jeff's character and nature from his many utterances and I think people respond to that people like this he's very cheeky and irreverent and um, quite sharp to caricature people and um i think people like that there's a sense of encountering whatever this whatever the explanation of this was there's a sense of encountering a, a person uh, as odd as that might sound hmm. yeah i mean i when you think about talking animals in folklore one thing it does make me think of is a sort of a, a witch's familiar or a, or a personal sort of daemon those those sorts of entities and yeah I, I mean I I wonder about that a little bit because I I know that the Isle of Man itself is is a location that's got a long history of folklore and traditions of these sorts of entities I, I recently got a book that was republished called Ghosts Bugains and Fairy Pigs which is a collection of accounts that a, a chap called Carl Roder assembled oh yeah and and it's jam packed full of all sorts of fantastical creatures some many of which you know, live on farms or and, and things like that and, and are part of the manx landscape so it's intriguing to think that that that's part of it too it, it, it does feel like a, a collection of different things sort of came together and and jeff was born out of those elements yes yes i'd go along with that um it, he's very much in the tradition of um, house fairies hmm. who are capricious and can play tricks on you but if you treat them right they can be helpful um, so in the first few months of Jeff's appearances he was threatening them and keeping them awake and, and they, the Irving family believing that this was a physical animal put down poison to try and get rid of him and this didn't work uh, so they decided to call a truce and they started to put out food instead um, and Jeff said, if, if you're kind to me, I'll bring you good luck. 
if you're not kind, I'll kill your poultry and I could kill you all and I could do terrible harm. Um, but because they were kind to him and they left out food like potato pie and chocolates and bacon, um, not your average mongoose food, I was just saying, but um, <laughs> as a result of this, he did do them good deeds. He, he caught these rabbits um, which was very useful to them because they were so poor they could buy the food or they could sell them down at the village. He found lost uh, sheep. He, he found uh, duck eggs. Um, and this is very much in keeping with traditions of house fairies, hobs, um, who attach themselves to a family or a farm. Um, and if you treat them, I guess it's a similar to Roman house spirits, Lares and Penates, that you, you have a, a spirit um, in the home. Um, so, yes, maybe he was a, a modern-day version of one of these spirits. But the, as you say, the, the Isle of Man then and now is very rich in folklore. Um, and this southwestern corner, which was the sort of most rural and um, unspoiled, I suppose, area was particularly rich in this. And when this case first came to the news, newspaper's attention, and initially the Isle of Man newspapers, they did characterise him as a, a bugging, um one of these spirits. Uh, and that's how he was never, to Manx people, he was never called the talking mongoose. He, he was the Dolby spook, Dolby being the nearby village. Um, and some people seem to take it as read that yes, you know there are such things, and this is not completely unheard of. Um, just as in Iceland, the belief in elves is important enough to occasionally reroute uh, road construction and things like that. And as I say, other people thought this was a hoax um, by the mother and the daughter. The, the witch's familiar idea that you mentioned is also an interesting one. And Harry Price made the remark that if this had happened three or four hundred years before, family would have been hanged as witches. And I, I fear mm. he's right. Um, there are lots of accounts from 17th century during the kind of witch trial mania of um, women with little animals, mice, weasels, uh, often with a name of one syllable. Um, and that's quite striking too, that the, the idea of this little animal that will do your bidding and uh, help you, but it can turn against you. Um, there are obvious, there's, there's a, there is a sense that Jeff is a kind of modern version of traditional Manx fairy lore or in uh, Witches Familiar beliefs um we will never know unfortunately um Vori refused to talk about it she was tracked down 40 years later she didn't want to discuss this she'd refused to talk about it um a journal from fate magazine managed to track her down she'd left the isle of man she'd moved to the mainland she moved to england somewhere near cheltenham and somehow he was very persuasive or ins insistent and he kind of forced her to talk about it. And she insisted it had all been true, but it had blighted her life. You know, she 
it's rather sad. She said she was, had been unable to get married because how could she get married with all this hanging over her that people thought she was a freak or so she said they thought I was mental. Um, the name Dolby Spook attributed to Jeff was also ascribed to her. She was sort of feared, I suppose, and uh, disliked in equal measure and people mistrusted her, even thinking that, so there was an idea that she was a ventriloquist and she was throwing her voice. Um, but because she was a bit different, she wasn't like the other children, she was ostracised, they feared her. Um, anyway, the point I was wanting to make was, if this had been such a blight on her life, why didn't she admit to this journalist in 1970, long after her father and mother had died? Why didn't she say, well, it was a bit of a joke that got out of hand, but I'm glad I can clear it up now. Um, she never did. She um, insisted that it had all been real, um, which I think is odd. If, you, if one compares it to the Cottingley Ferries women who, who did eventually admit that they had faked the photographs, um, I can certainly understand if the father was still alive. He he died in 1945. Um, why she wouldn't want to say it was a hoax, it would be terribly embarrassing if it had been a hoax against him or if it was a hoax that the father was involved in. And he was very domineering, as I say. So I can see why you wouldn't do that while he was alive. But to insist on the truth of something that if you knew it was had been fabricated, I find odd. Hmm. I mean, you were talking about the Enfield poltergeist, and I, I, there do seem to be similarities because I think in that case, the girl who was at the centre of that case was seen to be creating some of the poltergeist activity, but it was almost that, that she wanted the investigators to stay there because of the situation in, the, in that house at the time. And, and I think, you know, if something unusual like this does happen, there can be that encouragement to maintain interest in it and so that's where the hoax part comes from it's not a hoax in its entirety it's just that in a weird way you want to, you want to kind of maintain interest in it and so there are people around who are, you can interact with more and and it seems like that might be the case here because there was a point when harry price sent someone over is it a captain dennis and and he went to stay with them for a little while and there's a point where vari and margaret go upstairs and then some activity happens in you and you're thinking, okay, this is, I mean, that's clearly a chance for them to, to hoax this, this phenomenon. But at the same time, he reports sounds coming from behind the boards and things being thrown that they couldn't possibly have done. So, I mean, it does, it does seem like there's a potential there for some of it to have been hoaxed, but not the entire thing. I think also going back to the Enfield case, that when um, Guy Playfair and Morris Gross were, investigating it and they were spending a good deal of time at that house over, over a long period of time and they got to know the the family um mm. and their friends i think um there may even be a sense of not wishing to disappoint that you, you produce phenomena um this sometimes gets misrepresented i think um what gross and playfair said is yes they did catch out the the girls fabricating evidence in a very small minority of, of, of instances, but it couldn't possibly account for the whole thing. Um, and they said when they did 
when they were caught, it, they'd been fairly crude attempts mm. um, to throw objects or um, that kind of thing. And it, they distinguished those between the other phenomena that was being recorded there. Um, there is a similarity in that you get attention from people and you're suddenly interesting and people are hanging on your every word and you're being interviewed. And um, Price suggested this was the motive for the Jeff case as a hoax. He he wrote, he didn't publish this in his book about the case. I think he feared he'd be sued. But he, he wrote to a correspondent. He felt it was a hoax, but not for financial gain. In fact, there, there were two or three opportunities for James Irving to make money out of this, and he turned them down each time. He he was um, asked by a newspaper to sell some of the uh, photos or negatives of Jeff, and he refused. And um, an American theatre, theatrical impresario, kind of Barnum Bailey type, or offered him a huge amount of money for exclusive rights to Jeff. It's fifty thousand um, dollars, fantastic amount um, in the nineteen thirties, uh, especially given their poverty, um, and he, he refused. Um, so Price thought that if it's a hoax, it's not for financial gain. Um, he ascribed a psychological motive, and he he felt it was something to do with Irving's thwarted ambitions, again, like Fodor. But it wasn't because they were lonely and they wanted people to come to the farm because it, it got so bad with all these people trampling up there, up for Fridays, damaging the farm, that Irving actually um, put a notice in the local paper saying no visitors except by prior appointment. And he complained at regular points about their lives being disturbed by all these sightseers. So it isn't exactly they want attention. Uh, or maybe the wrong maybe that was the wrong kind of attention. Maybe the kind of attention that Irving wanted was learned people come to discuss this fantastic event um, and got more than he bargained for. Scores of locals trampling up there and grabbing bits of farm gates for souvenirs and, and damaging the place. When you went to the Isle of Man, was there a part of you that thought you might see Jeff when you went up there? I had hoped, yes, I had hoped there would be something there. I mean, this is a, a question of whether Jeff was attached to the family or to the place. Um, I didn't experience any, I didn't hear any voice or see any uh, little animal. What what I did detect was... Um, it wasn't a sinister place. I mean, maybe that's because I was there on a, a beautiful spring day. I'm sure in the depths of winter it's very different. But um, there was a sense of um, nature. Um, there was a family of hares right on the spot, and they were playing, seemingly quite oblivious to me. And um, probably the closest I've ever got to seeing these hares play. It was it was quite magical. Um, and I did think of Jeff in that sense as a, a nature spirit, I suppose, which is what some of the investigators had said. Um, but going back to the idea of him, whether he's, his existence was attached to the, the locale or the, uh, the family, there were, in addition to a few reports of him being there prior to the Irvings, I, I did get 
note of a few people who lived there afterwards who said there were strange sounds or whisperings in the role. And I, it was frustrating. I couldn't get these people to, um, they contacted me and they told me this. And, and certainly the, the names kind of added up. I, I knew the occupants after 1945, but I couldn't persuade them to expand on this. There were a couple of people who said they'd lived there and that they had heard uh, weird things. And uh, a tour guide who, who does a sort of a haunted Isle of Man tours told me that he'd, he'd been up there, up to the site, and he could hear a, a little voice. Um, but it's all, this is all very nebulous stuff. You know, it's not strong evidence. Um, but if if this is all, if these are all correct, then there is a sense that Jeff was and still is there rather than followed Rory uh, or was attached to the family. Um, I know this is begging the question as to whether these things have an independent existence or not. Hmm. When you were writing your book, were you the first person that had sort of properly investigated the case since those investigations back in the 1930s? Um, well, it's the first book since, full-length book since Harry Price's book. Um, there had been a rather good write-up in the Unexplained magazine, which was took um, a sceptical angle, but I think a sensible one based on the evidence published in the 1980s. Um, but, yes, it's, it's the, as far as I'm aware, it's, it's the first full-length book since Harry Price and R.S. Lambert's book. And I think that's because it, it really obsessed me and it kind of took over about seven years of my life, which was due, really, because of there being no simple explanation, which is what I thought there would be. I, I felt, ah, you know, I'm, I'm working in this library. I've got access to these archives and I can clear this up. This will be simple. Um, and it wasn't by any means simple. The, the more I read, the more it seemed to have these layers um, of hoax and possible mental illness and poltergeist and um, the folklore aspect, as you say, and they were all kind of overlaying and intermeshing. So in the end, I, I um, although I think I'd begun hoping that I was able to, that I would be able to kind of come to some definite conclusion, I, I wasn't able to. I, I felt that you, you couldn't really pin this down and categorise this. And maybe that's how Jeff wants it. Maybe he doesn't want to be pinned down. There was... Um, a South African lady went there in the 30s during Jeff's heyday. She was a, a spiritualistic investigator and she knocked on the door and came in and she shouted out, come out, Jeff, come out. I want you. I want and he um, he said, no fear. You'll put me in a bottle. He doesn't want to be trapped. He doesn't want to be categorised. You know, he, he exists behind the walls or behind the hedges and, and that's why he uh, maybe that's why the photographs are so poor because he he was very shy and didn't want to be pinned down and categorized um so in the end i suppose i was that was a satisfactory conclusion really that it, it would have been disappointing to come to some single conclusion uh because jeff is doesn't want to be put in a box he doesn't want to be summed up, categorised like that. Yeah, I find the more that I do 
these episodes of a podcast about different subjects, it becomes apparent that it's not so much about getting a definitive answer. The interesting bit is is the sort of the investigation, the, the theorizing, and and often there isn't a clear answer to any number of paranormal phenomena. It's the pleasure and the interesting part is is the investigation. Yes, and and um, when when I give talks about this. Um, I'm asked, how did it end? You know, what was the conclusion? And there wasn't really any grand conclusion, as as is often the case, as with um, Borley Rectory. I suppose you could say, well, how burnt down, that was a dramatic conclusion, but that was most likely done for the insurance. But in this case, Jeff didn't have a big argument with the Irvings and disappear. Or, um, he just went off more and appeared to them less and spoke less. Um, there was a farmer living there by the name of Leslie Graham who took over. He bought the place after um, James Irving died and he trapped and shot um, a big, looks like a polecat in the photos. And he claimed, I've captured Jeff, I've shot Jeff, we killed Jeff. But um, when the journalists showed the photos to Vorry, she was doubtful and she said, well, he looks, that doesn't really look like him. What this farmer Graham had trapped was a big three foot long polecat creature. And Laurie said, well, Jeff was, she was quite tactful. She goes, I don't think that's him unless he'd grown a lot. Because uh, he, when she knew him, he was six inches with a six inch tail. Um, so there isn't really any definitive conclusion. As as you say, with, with a lot of these um a lot of these cases. When you finished your book, how did that feel? Did you, because I imagine having spent that portion of your life writing it and going to the Isle of Man, it was, was there an element of sadness in that? Sadness in a sense, but also some relief because I was quite terrified all the time that someone would unearth Vora's secret diary um, that had been lumped and she'd said, you know, the whole thing is a hoax and, uh, um, because while I was writing, I'd already had um, an article in the 14 Times about this when I was doing talks, and um, it took me such a long time to write this that I was kind of getting people talking about it, communicating, writing to me and emailing me. and um, So I, I was yeah, quite nervous that somewhere there would be this, the, the truth, it's all a hoax, um, and, and it's Warrior's Diary. Um, I did try and... I suppose I had to do this. Her, her um, when she died in two thousand and five, I think it was, and her, um, I contacted her solicitors to see if there'd been any, if she'd left any effects, because um, I thought, well, you know, you never know. She might have left a diary, and I, I have to do this out of thoroughness. Um, and and the answer came back, no, you know, it was just they handled the sale of the estate, and and sadly, I think all her possessions were just sold or. or on the rubbish tip um but i have to confess to some relief i thought well i've done my bit i've tried but um it would have been a it would have been a very different book shall we say if if, uh, <laughs> if Rory's diary had turned up well I, I absolutely love the book i think you've written a definitive account of the mystery and about jeff so yeah thank well you. christopher thank you so much for being on the podcast no, thanks very much, Rick. It's been fun. Um, Jeff 
Jeff lives on. The legend of Jeff. Brilliant, yes. So if people want to find out more about you and your work, how best do they do that? Um, well, the book is still available. It's called Jeff, the um, story of an extra special talking mongoose, and it's published by Stranger Tractor Press, um, and you'll find it on the Stranger Tractor website, or, or it's on Amazon as well. Um, and I do have a website, which is simply jeffmongoose.co.uk, which has some information from the book and some excerpts from the book there. So that, that might be of interest to some people. Excellent. Well, I'll put all that in the show notes. Lovely. Thank you. Chris, thank you so much. Right. Thanks, Rick. It's not hard to see why this mysterious case was never solved. There's no single explanation for it that works. The idea that it was a hoax makes no sense, and Vari denied that it was to our dying day. Added to that, pretty much every attempt to objectively study Jeff, both scientifically and mystically, produced mixed results. For me, there are three key elements to Jeff's arrival. The Irving family, their home, and the folklore of the Isle of Man. James, Mary and Vori arrived on the island in difficult circumstances and struggled to fit in and make the farm work. Dawlish Cashin itself had an enigmatic past, with indications of settlement dating back centuries and stories of supernatural creatures stalking the landscape nearby. In this episode, I mentioned a book called Ghosts, Beguines and Fairy Pigs, which is a collection of Manx folklore compiled by a man called Carl Roder from stories told to him by the local population. It is full of accounts of shapeshifters, ghosts, fairies, at least one UFO sighting, as well as the mythic King Gori. The Isle of Man has been settled by Celts, Vikings and Christians, each bringing with them their own understanding of the island and the non-human entities that they share it with. So, really, when you take all that into account, Jeff isn't out of place. Personally, I think there was something already at Dawlish Cashin, a being long forgotten that connected with the Irvings and learned from them enough to awaken its personality. That's just my theory though. There's so much in this case that we didn't get to cover, so I thoroughly recommend you go out and get Christopher's book in order to get the complete account. Jeff really was a character, and some of the things he came out with are very funny. That's all for now. If you'd like to get in touch with me at Sphere HQ, you can email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod, and it's available on most of the well-known podcast platforms. Take care of yourselves out there, and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>